again, I hope y'all are doing well. And if you would, go ahead and turn to your, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8 in just a few minutes. We're going to take a much smaller bite this morning than we did last week, but again, we're still coming up to this, this precipice of the great salvation of God to this Lord, to his people um, that we have been building up to ever since Exodus chapter 1, and ultimately, historically, we've been building up since Genesis 46, when Joseph told his family that the Lord is going to make them into a great people and a great multitude and bring them again out of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey. And if we want to go back even further, it's been building up back from Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 17, when the Lord covenanted with uh, Abraham. And if we want to go even further back than there, Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord covenanted again that he would crush the head of the snake by the seed of the woman. Now, at the end of chapter 5 in Exodus began the conversation between the Lord that leads us up here to chapter 7, between the Lord and Moses. Moses is complaining, you shouldn't have sent me. The evil that Pharaoh has done is your fault. It's not mine, and I'm taking the blame. And the Lord mercifully answers Moses back with the seven I wills, or these seven great promises that he is going to accomplish on their behalf. And, and what we see in those first eight verses there in chapter 6 is an amazing list and words of, of God's glorious promises. And we looked forward and how they, how, how they are just foreshadowing the work of the gospel and the promises that we see in the gospel that we now experience today and promises that we will experience another day. But in verse 9 of chapter 6 ends with continued unbelief, disbelief, and rejection by the people of Israel, of Moses, of Aaron, and of God's word. Yet still, even after verse 9, the Lord is steadfast in his love for his people. He is compassionate, and he is merciful to his people to still fulfill his covenant because the plan must go on. And so it turns into this chapter six, turns into this discussion of obedience, and it comes down to God telling Moses to go, just go, be obedient. It's not a question of why, it's a question of go, go and be obedient. Will you trust me? Verses 14 through 27, that genealogy there of Moses and Aaron reminding them and us that God has been planning redemption of his people for generations now. And these are the two that he has raised up to bring about his deliverance. And then now in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, the Lord reveals his purposes to us in delivering his people by the means by which he is choosing to deliver his people there in verses 1 through 7. And I think it's summed up there in verses 6, and that is so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. The Egyptians will know, and in turn, so will you. You will know that I am the Lord, and I am about to stretch out my hand against Egypt. So looking now at, at Exodus chapter 7, let's read together starting in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
When the Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord, Yahweh, had said. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now these few verses sound like a small confrontation in the midst of what's about to take place. It seems small and seems insignificant, and you're probably wondering, Pastor, why are you not moving forward? And the reason why is this is a significant passage. Yes, there's a a small sign of snake handling versus the the huge signs that are about to come, but, but this is the beginning of the 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 escalation of events to come, the great showdown that it's about to take place in the next five, six chapters or so. The great showdown. We love stories of showdowns. I I love stories of of showdowns. We're, we're, We're drawn to them. And so, you know, depending on what your personality is and what kind of showdown you like, you know, whether it's sports or, or history or fantasy, whatever it, it may be, we, we love them. And we see them in movies and we see them in stories all the time. You can't forget about stories like The Hobbit, where the main, the main narrative that kind of flows throughout underneath the story of the Hobbit is this impending showdown that's building up between good and evil that really doesn't even happen until you read the next book. And that is the Lord of the Rings. When Middle Earth is facing annihilation from the greatest enemy that they have ever seen. And then finally, there's this epic battle. And during the epic battle, the, the ring is destroyed right, at the, right in the nick of time. Shadows, uh, showdowns happen in, in history. Some of the famous ones. How about the, the gunfight at the OK Corral? The showdowns between the Earps and the Clantons. It's a good one, portrayed in some movies and other things. Or maybe, I, I guess this kind of, that would be sort of an infamous one as the, this next one. Another infamous one, how about the, the Hatfields and the McCoys? Right there in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. We see showdowns in sports. We love stories of the underdogs who come back and win and, and, and beat all the odds. But I think what we love the most with showdowns is not the underdog versus the titan, but we like the two titans going after one another. It's one of the reasons why the Super Bowl is so popular is because we love seeing the best of the best going at it. 
I think in, in sports, uh, one of the, the best showdowns that ever happened, I think most people will talk about this quite a bit, is way before, not way before, before my time, October 30th, 1974, was the boxing match to end all boxing matches. It was the publicized as the rumble in the jungle held in Africa, in Zaire, which is now called the, Dominic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was between the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, versus, before he was a grill, George Foreman, <laughs> for the heavyweight title of boxing. And everything that I've read about it and was watching some YouTube things on it, it was it was a great fight, and it went eight rounds. When you see two heavyweights go eight rounds, that's pretty significant. It went eight rounds where, where Ali eventually beat Foreman by wearing him out, by, by doing his famous rope-a-dope strategy where he wore out the much stronger George Foreman. What a showdown it was. In the Bible, there's some great showdowns. How about David and Goliath, right? right that's definitely the underdog versus the, versus the titan. And yet we know also the, the greatest of all showdowns in all of the Bible, though, is Jesus Christ conquering sin. In his resurrection, he conquered death. But the second of greatest showdowns, I think, begins right here. The second of the greatest of all showdowns begins right here. And it's, it's not a showdown between, uh, between Moses and Pharaoh or Aaron versus these magicians, or Israel versus Egypt. No, it is Yahweh against Pharaoh. And this war right here is going from cold to hot, and it's about to get hot quick. It is a showdown between the Lord versus all of evil against Satan himself. This is a, not a rumble in the jungle, but it is a showdown in the desert. And it will be about the glory and sovereignty of God that will be revealed to Egypt and to Israel, to the Israelites and to the world in ways that are completely, unbelievably, unspeakable and unable to obtain or even to believe unless you see them yourself and they see each one. Snake handling is here, and yet even more is the sovereignty of God. This passage is big, and it has some big meaning for us as it begins this new section of the, the plagues and the signs that God uh, 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 brings upon Egypt. And what he is doing is he's showing his absolute sovereignty over the nations, over kings, and over other gods. Not that they exist in the first place. And over all evil itself. That they are all pawns in his hands. And he is showing in this showdown that he is the Lord. And as we saw back in verse 6, they say he wants everyone to know it. That I am Yahweh. And there is no other. And he, he tells us this, that this is, his, this is what he's doing throughout the Bible. In fact, that's the whole point of the Bible. It's revealing of himself. Again, back to verse 6, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
No wonder in the first commandment, he says in chapter 20, verse 3, do not have any other gods before me. Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we read this morning, it's an explanation of the signs and wonders that he is about to perform. But it says in verse 34, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? That's the 11 plagues and 11 signs that he does all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Verse 35, to show you, right? To you it was shown, right? It was already happened. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, that Yahweh is God, and there is none other beside him. This is what he is accomplishing. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Doesn't Jesus himself then use also this same language? I am. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life. And what is it? That they may know you. To know the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's exclusive language. It, it takes everything else and says, nope, this is it. That you will know, that you will know the only true God. Paul speaks of the same kind of language of turning from false idols and to the living God. So this is the point, I think, of this passage, which is opening us up to the rest of the story, is again the theme that runs throughout the Bible of the sovereignty of God, and that God is sovereign and there is no other. And as his people, we are to know him and to worship him alone. In the first part of our passage this morning, we see, we see something sort of refreshing. And I kind of want to say at the beginning, kind of get it out of the way. And that is Moses and Aaron were obedient. I love that. We saw that in the past last week, but also we see it again, that they were obedient. They did as the Lord commanded. No more of this talking, but God, they're going to reject me. I can't talk right, all this kind of stuff. That's gone. But he does what the Lord says. But there in verses 8 through 10, we see how the Lord is sending Moses and Aaron as ambassadors, again, like they did back in chapter 5, to Pharaoh, to again, to demand that he lets his people go. But this time, excuse me, he sends them with a sign. Now remember, all the way back in chapter 5, the first time they came to Pharaoh, Aaron says exactly what he's supposed to say, but the Pharaoh says back, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So no wonder it is the Lord's purposes here to make sure that Pharaoh and all of Israel and all of Egypt and all the world and us know who this is that's doing this work. He is about to find out. And this is the beginning. 
And these instructions that he gives to, to Aaron and Moses are, are, are quite precise there in verse 9. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, right? Our world wants signs. They want miracles. They want wonders. They want you to prove and demand a sign. Give me proof. Because why? Proof is in the pudding. If it's not in the pudding, then it's not true. If he wants to know who, and the Lord says, if he wants to know who I am and he demands a sign, then let's give it to him. Oh, but we're not just going to give him one. I'm going to make sure he sees all 11 of them. Remember back in chapter 4 when, when, when Moses was still at the burning bush, God gave Moses three signs. One was, was this one, the sign of the staff in his hand. The throne on the ground would turn into a serpent, and then he would pick it up again by his hand and it would turn back into a staff. Then there was the second one where he could put his hand into his cloak, and when he pulled it out, it was covered with leprosy. This isn't leprosy. Covered with leprosy, and he put it back in and cleansed, healed. And the third sign was he took some water and a pitcher from the Nile, and he would pour it out and it would turn into blood. And in our passage this morning, we see that the first sign that is given to Moses and Aaron, these are, this is the one that is explicitly the one that the Lord wants him to show first. Now, why in the world would this be the first of all the 11? Of all the things that God can do, why would it be, take that from him, why would it be a staff turning into a serpent? Why would it be that? Now, I know you've, some of y'all have probably heard me say 11 signs, and you're probably eagerly wanting to correct me, but no, I'm going to correct you, because this is included with all of them, and this plus the 10 equals 11, and in the Bible, in the, uh, they're all called signs, except for in your editor's notes, they're called plagues, but they're all signs. They're all pointing to something. They're showing something greater, something of greater value. They're not just plagues. But why was this the first? Now, don't go writing in your Bibles and scratching out plagues, okay? Literalists out there. But why was this the first? Especially when we read this passage and how easily it was for the Egyptians to repl replicate. This seems kind of weak to us. This seems kind of small. And yet there is way more below the surface here than we may know. That's why I'm building it up so you can figure that out. Because the staff turning to a serpent is actually a full frontal assault against the sovereignty of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And it's done right there. But as we saw last week by two old dudes, presumably in the court of Pharaoh, stand there, have the audacity to do such a thing. Now, I was thinking about, about that. What, what does that mean? Like for someone, two, two, two guys, right, whose people are in slaves or slavery, who have nothing of worldly value to stand on that gives them any kind of authority whatsoever before the king of, 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 of Egypt, what gives them any right to do such a thing? What audacity they must have had. So I, I was thinking to myself, what's a good example that maybe we can relate to that? So, so I was like, well, this might be a good one. So I Googled, who read the Declaration of Independence to King George III? Who would have the audacity to do that? Who would have the, uh, the courage to do that? Because I thought to myself, I wouldn't want to be that guy to stand before the king of the greatest nation of the world at that time, the biggest and strongest nation of the empire, 
ever read such a thing? So I Googled it, and I looked it up, and checked it out, and according to a, a, a website of BBC History, I read some interesting things. And that was when, uh, and, and that's what, what it said was, is that King George, who is directly referred into the, the declaration over 28 times, right? Accusations against the king over 28 times. He actually was never sent a copy of the declaration. There's no historical record that he even read it. Or even over his whole life did he even see a copy of it. Well, certainly it was read, received by someone in London and probably by their prime minister, Lord North, at the time. And certainly the king knew of it and he knew the content and he knew its intent. But as king, he felt this is beneath him. I'm not going to read such a thing. But if he had, if he had heard this and read the declaration, read in his presence, could you imagine the anger of the king? to read of such defiance of colonists before their king. Well, the situation in Egypt is far worse because, as, because essentially the signers of the declaration are standing right there before the king and they're delivering it themselves. And the sign, as audacious as it was, again, is this full frontal assault against the sovereignty of Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. And it goes right at the heart of their beliefs. First, the, the Egyptians, they had this weird fascination of snakes. And we talked about this, I think, weeks ago, or months ago at this point. Of, of they had this weird fascination with snakes. You can see it in their culture. You can see it in their, uh, in, in their art. And par partially was because they were afraid of serpents and what they represented. Serpents to them had a, a, a representation of their particular serpent god named Apopis, who personified evil. This was their, their evil, uh, evil god that would bring chaos and evil into their lives. And so they had a, a fear of serpents because of this particular god that they believed in. And so they would wear amulets to protect themselves and other magic tricks and things like that that would protect themselves from this serpent-looking god. They had another god named Wajet, who was a goddess of what was, once was Lower Egypt, and then when they attacked and took over Upper Egypt, she became the symbol of what the pharaoh took, which also was a serpent. And so notoriously, he would wear serpent on his headdress and on his, on his own staff. And so to the people of Egypt, not only was it a a fascination and fear, but it was also a sign of power because this was the sign in which Pharaoh had, a sign that was connected to their religion, a sign of sovereignty and power, but also a sign of their worship. So they were also drawn to the worship of these, of these snakes. They built temples in honor of their snake goddesses and goddess Wajet, and, and some of the Pharaohs even believed that she's the one that brought them the power and gave them divine powers and divine protection. And so can you imagine here that when the Lord tells Moses and Aaron to throw your staff on the ground and it will become a serpent, that the Lord God is challenging and defying the king of Egypt and all the gods of Egypt at their own game. He is challenging them. 
He's challenging all their beliefs, all of their worship, all of the sovereignty that they think they have, all of their things that they hold near, and all the things that they hold dear. And just a side note of application, brothers and sisters, the Lord does not play second place. God's Spirit follows the same strategy when he wants to establish his throne in a sinner's life. He makes fools of all of our idols. God's Spirit follows this strategy. And he makes his attack right at the source of a sinner's strength. What we hold dear, he, he goes right at it because he is the one who is sovereign. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. That's why we hear in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him every name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, lest we think that God is done revealing his sovereignty of Pharaoh just by throwing this uh, staff on the ground and turning to, turning to his serpent, the passage goes on in verses 11 and 12. And what's pretty amazing here is, is as after this defiant act that is done in his place is that Aaron and Moses are, are still standing there, that they're not, they're not struck dead here. Why is that? Well, simply because of the providence of God. It's not their time. The Lord is at work clearly in the heart of Pharaoh. We've seen that over and over again. We see it in verse 13. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But instead, Pharaoh, who doesn't seem impressed by this, by this sign at all, he doesn't seem impressed by the staff, even though it's such an audacious act, a, uh, 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 almost a sense, a, a, a slap across the face in many ways. He doesn't seem impressed with the staff turning a serpent, so he calls, his, he calls his own boys in because they have their own snake-handling tricks as well. And he says, well, I, I, can do the, I can do this too. We can do this. In fact, we can do more than one. I told you this was a showdown, right? So here's the showdown. Here's God's snake, and here comes, here comes Pharaoh's snakes. And this whole scene is, is just foreshadowing what's, what's to come over the next few chapters. Right, but this is, this is Pharaoh's chance to strike back. And this is, only, this is as good as Pharaoh can get. Right? He has his wise men, his sorcerers and magicians, and, and they duplicate the same sign, don't they? They duplicate the same sign that, that the Lord has told his prophets to do. But verse 11 is very interesting. Just kind of a side note to help us understand what's going on. It tells us that they do it by their secret arts. Well, what does that mean? Were these guys just clever illusionists, just knew how to do magic tricks and sleight of hand? I have a staff, and I'm able to hide it and then throw a snake out of my pocket. Or the rabbit in a hat situation, and the snake eats the rabbit. Is it just sleight of hand, diversion, smoke and mirrors? It, it almost reads that this was a normal situation. Like, this is, this is what the things that the magicians and things do as to entertain Pharaoh. Maybe these guys were actual real snake charmers. They, can, they could charm these snakes, and, and they have these kind of tricks that they could do to uh, show that maybe the snake is not really uh, alive and it looks like a staff until they throw it on the ground. You can read in some commentaries that, that people can do some pretty crazy things with snakes, particularly in Egypt at the time, and even still today, that they can grab a cobra and they can pinch it at a certain place in its neck, and that'll paralyze it for a time until they throw it on the ground or do something and it turns back, in, and then it 
looks like it comes back alive and turns into a snake. But I think, I think God's word is to be read very plain here. And that it is telling us that these secret, heart, these secret arts are not sleight of hand tricks or illusions or snake charming. But they are actually tricks done by the power of evil to actually change staves into wood, from wood into serpents. Now here's the thing about how the enemy works. And, and I think it's exemplified here, the best that they could do was what? What's the best that these, e these workers of evil could do? They could only imitate. They could only imitate what God had already done. Satan, though powerful, he can only corrupt. He does not create. He does not create life. He does not create joy. He steals it and attempts to kill it. He doesn't one-up God. He only copies and counterfeits. The Bible says that the, that the works of Satan, all his power, all his signs, all his wonders are false. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Think about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness where Satan comes and tempts him. And it shows us this very thing. In all the temptations that he gives Jesus, what does he do? He uses God's word. He uses the things that God has already created for good, and he perverts them and distorts them to serve his own purposes. Think about all the temptations that we face that are just for false things for fake things, for, because of lies, things that, are, that God has made good are perverted and turned into something that is not true. They're just imitations of, of the best, of what God has already given us. I'll give you another example, and this might be a little extreme. Have you ever heard of the Church of Satan? It's a real thing. And it's actually growing, unfortunately. And the, they mainly claim themselves to be atheists. But look what they call themselves, the church of Satan. That's imitation. That's, that's copycats. They, they are not innovators. They are copycats and counterfeits and false and fake. That's all evil and sin ever offers us is fake counterfeits that will not last that, as we will see later in the verse, is they're just swallowed up. Now, despite Pharaoh striking back, throwing his things down, and you can see the laughter in the room <laughs> and the chuckling going around, but all the crowd, and, because they're laughing at these old guys and think, oh, we, been, we do this every day. But right there sneaks in right at the end of verse 12. Step one, how does God reveal his sovereignty over Egypt? Eat the snakes. This is the, this is the drop the mic moment. This is the you-just-got-burned moment. This is where all the chuckling and all the laughter just stops in the room because the bill has come due and it does not look good for Egypt. There is a swallowing up that happens at verse 12 and it is a clear sign of victory. The staff, the snake that the Lord had Moses and Aaron throw down that turned into a serpent, swallowed up the serpents of Pharaoh. 
Think about that language, swallowed. We get that understanding when one snake ate the other. What a sight to see, huh? It's a gross thing to see a snake eat anything. Eat anything. But if we're talking about a battle, if we're talking about a, um, about a war, and if I use the language to describe, you, to describe to you the kind of battle it was by saying that the enemy was swallowed up, what am I saying? I am saying to you that, that this was a one-sided victory, that there, this wasn't even a, a contest. In the song of deliverance, in Exodus chapter 15, that Moses sang and the Israelites sang, they sang in Exodus 15 verse 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth, and swallowed them. Here in chapter 7, the snake handling, swallowing, the snake handling, swallowing that's taking place is forecasting for us what is about to happen to the Egyptians at the end of all the signs. And this is what the song is all about in Exodus 15, is that when the right hand of God is stretched out, his staff, the Egyptians will be covered by the waters of the Red Sea. They will be swallowed up. And this swallowing of the evil serpents is foreshadowing for us a swallowing of the enemies of God. God is not just challenging the gods of Egypt or Pharaoh, but he is flat out pronouncing their downfall because, again, the purpose of the passage, he alone is sovereign. Brothers, sisters, and friends, there is a, a great point to this because the Lord has also revealed his sovereignty over the spirits of the age and over all of this world. In the Lord's word, in God's word, in the gospels, we see unequivocally the sovereignty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That he is not only Lord of creation, but he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And in the Gospels, we read how Jesus Christ came and he disarmed Satan's authority and he made a public spectacle, dropping the mic. He dropped the mic, triumphing, triumphing over him through the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. He proved that he was not under Satan's power because he was raised from the dead. And so now we can, we can say that as God's word tells us so very clearly that death has been swallowed up in victory. We see that in Hosea and we read it again in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54. All the swallowing in verse in Exodus 7 and then in chapter 14 is pointing us forward to the greater swallowing where Jesus Christ swallows the whole cup of death and the wrath of God and he says it is finished. And this is why Paul resounds in that 1 Corinthian passage in verse 57. He says, after death is swallowed up, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the sovereignty of God has been revealed over our has been revealed over our captors and our savior has swallowed up all of death and guess what we don't have to guess we know we're christians we're here we're gathered on the sunday this lord's day he is alive and all those satan's power is real it is not absolute it is not definite it is not infinite His power over sin was vanquished and through the cross. And his power over death was swallowed up by the resurrection, praise the Lord. And when we feel so imprisoned in our sins, brothers and sisters, when, we feel, when our fear is still in our spiritual bondage, all we need to do is to hold on to this very truth and to our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, who defeated it all through his cross. And there today is an empty tomb proving that he is alive and he is Christus Victor. And as God's sovereignty is revealed to Egypt and to Israelites and to the world, we see also that his sovereignty is revealed to Moses and to Aaron. And after all the drama, right, you can see the picture, the throwing down the snakes, another one's eating the snake. We see just kind of slid right in before we get to the first, before we get to the first sign. Verse 13, verse 13, sliding right in, we see how the sovereign hand of God is over the hearts of men. And in particular, we see Pharaoh. This is the third time we've read of this kind of, this kind of language, right? Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But who is this verse for? Who is verse 13 for? Why, why would God ordain this to be in his word for us? Is it for Pharaoh? No, he wouldn't care. It's for Aaron. And it's for Moses. It's for the Israelites. It's for, for all of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear to understand that beneath everything, God is sovereignly over all of this including Pharaoh's own heart, to work out his divine will according to his purposes for his glory. Now, the text will explicitly say four more times that the truth, that's truth that may be hard to grasp, and certainly it is mysterious, but there are purposes. The purposes behind them are clear in why God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that is, again, as we've already said, we've already hammered it home, is so that they will know that he is Yahweh and there is no other. And through these 11 signs, we also will hear three more times that Pharaoh himself is hardening his heart. And because of his own hardness and because of his own stubbornness to relent, in chapter 10, even some of his own officials, some of his own people come to him and they, they beg him. They beg him to change his mind, to, to relent and to give this, this Lord, this God, what he, what he wants. But even then, he doesn't turn. He doesn't relent. And this reveals to us one thing that's very, very clear, brothers and sisters, for us to understand is the insanity of the hardness of man's heart against God, however it is manifested. In the same chapter, chapter 10, Moses again comes to Pharaoh, and this is the last time he pleads to let God's people go. And Pharaoh bans Moses from coming back and basically said, you come back to me again, I'm going to kill you. 
And what a tragedy. This is the hardness of his heart. And what a tragedy that is because Moses and Pharaoh are the only hope. Or Moses and, and Aaron, excuse me, are Pharaoh's only hope. But God's judgment is severe. And it is revealed by giving us what we want and by removing us from any hope, isn't it? He removes, he gives exactly to Pharaoh what he wants. More. He gives Pharaoh exactly what he wants. And then he removes that hope from him. Brothers and sisters, this is a case study of the deceit of sin. It's like sitting at a stoplight and watching someone carelessly run a red light that, is just, that you have just stopped at and seeing them getting blindsided by oncoming traffic. And there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. We are just reading this, watching this, and listening to this take place. Pharaoh refusing to listen to the Lord because he has so hardened his heart and so has the Lord hardened his heart. Both perspectives are true and both perspectives are serious and theological. Pharaoh is freely choosing to do what has already, to what he is already enslaved to, to his sin. So I ask the question, who is really in slavery here? Is it Pharaoh or is it the Israelites? This is the condition of all man without the transformation of the gospel. This is the insanity of all sin that we see around us. The hardening of hearts to the word of God, to the truth, to the revelation right before our eyes. When we see the worship of creature rather than the creator, that's a hardening of hearts. It's an overthrow of, of all reason. And I contend to you, brothers and sisters, that this sin, all sin, is insanity. Brothers and sisters, we must take a warning here, lest we too also will be caught up in the insanity of sin. And be reminded of Hebrews 3.13. Be exhort, be, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We find excuses for our own sinful pride, our pride and desires. We find reasons for doing what we want to do. And when it all unravels, in our stubborn pride, we, were, we wade further into the mire. Rather than accepting our terrible mistakes and repent. By nature, man goes deeper and deeper into the pit. Just as Pharaoh did. And church, this is why we need the Word of God. And as Hebrews 3.13 has told us, that we need each other to encourage and to exhort one another as long as it is today. And I think that's today. To encourage one another and to fight for sin and to fight over sin in our lives and to make war on the flesh. But what this perspective from, he, uh, from uh, Exodus chapter 7 is telling us and that is given to Aaron and Moses, is that despite this wicked, hard-hearted king, their God, the Lord, is sovereign even over the hearts of men, and that they can trust in him. And in that, in these mysterious statements that are deeply theological, we can be comforted in those truths. We can be steady in those truths.
We can be calm and not anxious. And we can pray. And we can trust and we can turn the other cheek. Because the sovereignty of God is what comforts us. And this has been the whole point of the passage. It's to demonstrate the sovereignty of God, yes, over evil, and how he will systematically, according to his will, dismantle and destroy evil. The unbelieving world around us would look at this passage this morning that we have just read, and particularly in the way that I have just preached, and they would call this kind of God and this kind of sovereignty tyrannical and egomaniacal. That word. Ego maniac. They would call it unloving. They would call it unjust. They would call it unright. Not right. But brothers and sisters, we must not be swayed, nor we must be confused to believe such nonsense. Because it's the same sovereign power that judged Egypt. It was the same sovereign power that judged Egypt and the same sovereign power that was poured out of the storehouses of the wrath of God upon his own son in order that we might be redeemed out of our Egypt and out of our sin and from death. And if this showdown is not true, and if this is not about the sovereignty of God overcoming evil, then, brothers and sisters, then we are just left in our sin. We have no hope. We turn to ourselves as being our only hope. And if God just becomes our divine butler to serve us at every one of our whims, then he is not God at all, but an idol. But we do know that it's true. That the wrath of God was poured out on his son so that we might be redeemed. But we remember, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so to that end, our great application of this text this morning is to give us a divine picture of all that is happening around us. All these things that we may not understand, we cannot put together. It's very mysterious, difficult to understand. Get that. But in the midst, you and me, we, we can be, we can be faithful in the midst. We can trust and we can, be, we can be obedient to the commands of our Heavenly Father because He is good and all His ways are righteous. So this morning, as we turn to him and we are led in prayer in just a moment a prayer of thanksgiving may i ask you as all the church as our brother comes up and prays that we all pray together in thanking god for his sovereignty and for his sovereign grace over us and all god's people say <laughs>